I don't know where the Lord's going to take us. I got a couple ideas where he may be leading us, but we'll see. So tonight here in Genesis 47, we have to finish up just a little bit of housekeeping. We got a little bit of leftover from the whole famine where Jacob and his sons had to come to Egypt. So we got a little bit here at the end, and I think this shows us a little bit of Joseph, how good of an administrative servant that he was, and the neat part about him when it comes to that. One of the most overlooked gifts in the Bible is the gift of administration. You know, when we think of gifts in the Bible, we think of the fun ones. You know, you think of speaking in tongues, you think of ministry, you think of, um, you know, the Lord doing all this word of wisdom, word of knowledge, etc. There's this little gift thrown in there called the gift of administration, which is that gift that helps keep everything flowing and organized. I don't have the gift of administration. I'm very thankful for the people out here that serve on staff or volunteer that have the gift of administration because they keep things organized. So that way when you come up to me and say, hey, I got a question about this, I say, you don't have to talk to me. Go talk to Nancy because she's got the gift of administration. She'll keep the ship afloat. So you see with Joseph tonight, this administration and this Lord has really blessed him with this. Now, real quick overview of what we're going to happen. Verses 13 through 26. Here's basically what's going to happen. The famine's going on in Egypt. And so they've had the seven good years followed by the seven bad years. So they've stockpiled for these bad years. So now we're at the end of the famine, and everybody now is running out of food. So now they're coming to Joseph and saying, we need the food. So what you see happening, verse 13, now there was no bread at all in the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money. And that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph bought the money into Pharaoh's house. So basically, they've used up all their money now for food. So now what are they going to do? Verse 15. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. And Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. Now they go for the next phase. We're going to give you all of our livestock. And you're now going to give us food. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, when the year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. Also, there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us our land for bread. We and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, for they ate their rations with Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So what you see here is the, as the famine went on, they traded all their money for food, they traded all their livestock for food, they traded all their land for food, and they basically become hired servants now of Pharaoh. And they work out this deal from verses 23 through 26 that basically says this. You work the land, you get to keep 80% of that, 20% goes to Pharaoh. So basically, Pharaoh now owns the land, the livestock, everything. You're going to work for us, but whatever you produce, you get 80%. Let Pharaoh keep 20% of that. And that's kind of the deal that happened. And you see Joseph in this amazing administrative position. And I cannot stress this to you enough. This is the Hebrew foreigner that was in jail for rape 
that now is basically running the nation of Egypt. I look at these verses, verses 13 through 26, and I read so many commentaries and studies on it, because I read through this, and I'm like, Lord, what are you trying to tell us here? What are you trying to tell us? And I heard pastors try to say, well, this is a picture of the millennial reign and everything going through Jesus. I don't know about that. Maybe you can make some analogy. I read verses 13 through 26, and I can't get past the point that just one decade earlier, this man, this foreigner, this just Hebrew that is despised and hated by the Egyptians was in an Egyptian prison for rape, and now he is in charge of the nation. I look at that as this amazing picture of what the Lord does. And I got this ongoing verse that's just kind of a theme for the message tonight, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. I mean, do you really think if you could go back in time when Joseph was in prison and say, hey, Joseph, guess what? Guess what you're going to be doing in 10 years? You're going to be running the nation. You're going to be the most powerful man in Egypt. I mean, do you think Joseph would even in his wildest dreams have thought that? And I think about how many times do we put God in a box? You know, we think that that marriage is past being restored. We think that person is never going to get saved. We think that person is never going to make good, godly choices. And we kind of give up on them. And God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. Now, what happens when you hear that? You either stop and say, Amen, I believe that. Or you say, Yeah, that worked for them, but not in this case. And we convince ourselves that the situation you're facing is worse than any other situation that has ever existed in the 6,000 years of this world. You, you know the only person that can't be touched by grace. You know the only person that can't make better choices. And you just, No, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. And here's Joseph leading Egypt. It's an amazing story. Do not overlook that. We've gotten so accustomed to Joseph. You've got to remember who he was, where he was, when God called him into this position. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. So that kind of ends the Joseph slash famine story. Because really what happens here from verse 27 on, we're really starting to get into some prophecy now. And really what happens to the nation of Israel for these remaining chapters here. So does anybody have any final quick questions, comments about anything here with Joseph, the famine, etc.? It's a little bit of housekeeping from what it was last week. All right. Oh, sorry, Lynette. It was the people's food, but there was such a surplus of that food. If you remember correctly, the first seven years had such a huge surplus. So what they did with that extra surplus food is that Joseph, as the government, said that you're going to start giving that to us, the stockpile it. So why did they have to pay for it the next time? Well, because what happened is the food that they kept the first time, they used during the seven good years. Then when the famine hit, they had no food to produce. So they gave their food to the government and they sold that food. My understanding is to the government, because if I remember correctly, in Genesis 41... It says, let them store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh, verse 35, and let them keep food in the cities. That food shall be as a reserve for the land and for the seven years. So when I look at that as being under the authority of Pharaoh, I think they didn't really have a whole lot of say. I think Pharaoh basically said, this is something we're going to do. This is the plan. So yes, it was their food, but at the same time too, uh, I'm not trying to get political here, so don't jump on me, please. Uh, the government kind of stepped in and said, we're going to take this and we're going to keep an eye on this for you so during the good years we could give this back to you. So the government got a good deal out of this. There's no doubt about that. Because if you look at this, at the end, the government now owns everything in Egypt, 
Everybody that lives in Egypt is basically working for the government, and the government gets 20% of it every year. So I don't disagree with what you're saying, but the Bible says the authority of Pharaoh that that's what they did it on. So Now, nobody take this and run with it, okay? Let's not do that tonight, okay? Anybody else have anything they want to say before we go? You're going to run with it? Just one run, okay. Let's just do a light jog, okay? Let's not run with it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Why didn't they eat their livestock? Well, because back then, if you ate your livestock, you're shooting yourself in the foot for later on. You need your livestock to work the ground, and you need your livestock to do your farming. So, you you know, it's like somebody eating their John Deere now. It just doesn't work, you know? You need the John Deere for to produce next year. Oh, you sell it off. Yeah, you sell off the John Deere. I didn't think people would have this much to say on this. I thought, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, and, and you know, I know you're kind of making a joke, but there's some truth to that I was reading with this, and the one guy said, seriously, there's a lot of people that would say, hey, you're telling me you're capping my taxes at 20%? They'll take that deal right now. So, you know, they got to keep 80% of it. And that's just the way the system was back then. And so that's how they kind of consolidated this power. And you see Joseph kind of doing an amazing thing with this. And the Bible says, and if you want to go back and reread it, once again in Genesis 41, that as this happened, I just want to repeat some of this stuff. Verse 47, it says, Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which was in the land of Egypt, laid up the food in the cities. He laid it up in every city of the food in the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea. So it was under the authority of Pharaoh that they did those things. And what happened is that they ended up selling it back to them. And that's just the way the system was. Not saying it was fair, but that's just the way the system was. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay. So, change of scenes now. We know that Jacob's back in Egypt. We're getting now to the final years of Jacob's life. And he's going to start blessing his sons. So what you see here in chapter 48 is going to be blessing Joseph and his sons. Chapter 49 is basically prophecy and blessing of the other 11 sons. Chapter 50 is the death of Jacob and Joseph reassuring his brothers that now that dad is gone, I'm not going to hold anything against you. But before we get to that, chapter 47. So Israel, Jacob, dwelled in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. And they had possession there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me, and he swore to men. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Now, real quick, what this really is just a reminder to us that this is not where God wants Israel. Remember, this has been prophesied years ago that Israel is going to come and spend this 430 years in Egypt, and they were going to come out a great and mighty nation. This is not where God planted them. He wants them to leave. Now, they're going to leave in a few hundred years, but this is just kind of a reminder. Now, this is also a reminder to us. If you remember our teaching point from a couple weeks ago, we live in this world, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear. We are a citizen of heaven, and we are just traveling through. Depending on your translation, we're either just a pilgrimage or a sojourner going through this. So with that being said, this is just a great reminder to us that Joseph and Jacob are basically saying, Hey, 
let's just start living here forever. No. This is a temporary time. And how many times, just ask yourself this, this week, how many times did you get worked up, bothered, angry, frustrated by something that happened in this world that is temporary that you're not going to take to heaven with you? Think about that. How many times as spouses, as people at work, at home, as parents, etc., we allow little temporal things to get the best of us when really in the whole scheme of eternity, it doesn't matter. As we mentioned on Sunday, even these things that we think are big pale in comparison to eternity. We mentioned Sunday. Finances. Boy, this world runs around money. Well, the Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We talk about our health. The Bible says you're going to have a glorified body. We can just keep going down the road. What you see here in verses 27 through 31 is just a reminder to us, Israel is not staying in Egypt. This is temporary, which is a picture of us temporarily being in this world, but we have another home waiting for us. So chapter 48, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father was sick. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. So what we have now is the blessing that's going to happen. Joseph gets a better blessing. And we're going to see what's going to happen with this blessing here. Verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you of you a multitude of people. And give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget, after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. What are we doing here? Joseph is saying, excuse me, Jacob is saying to Joseph, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you so much that I'm actually taking your children. Now, grandparents, you probably wanted to do that sometimes. I'm just going to claim your kids as my kids. So this is what Jacob's doing. He basically says to Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, those are now mine. Now, any kid you have after them, yeah, you can keep them. But these are mine. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that he's including them in his blessing. So instead of having 12 tribes of Israel, now we have 14 tribes of Israel. Now, I love this stuff. I'm just going to tell you right now, I love this stuff. And I could go, I could do a whole teaching just on who are the 12 tribes of Israel. No one else seems to find it as exciting as I do. So I'm going to give you a short, condensed lesson here. There's actually 14 tribes that are going to have this blessing. But really, the Bible talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. So what does this mean? Joseph is now represented by Manasseh and Ephraim. So now we're down to 13, because Joseph's kind of out of the picture, but represented by Manasseh and Ephraim. So now how do we get 13 down to 12? Well, now we have to talk about the tribe of Levi. Did you guys get that PowerPoint working? Is that up there? I got a slide here with a couple verses that I want to kind of share with you a little bit about this. Just some reminders here about Levi. This is what happened with the tribe of Levi. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Deuteronomy 10, and jump ahead to Deuteronomy 18. The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offsprings of the Lord made by fire in his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. So leave that up there for a little bit. When they come to dividing up the twelve tribes of Israel and their land allotment, 
Joseph is represented by Manasseh and Ephraim, so now we're down to 13. The Levites don't get an inheritance, so now we're down to 12. The Levites just had some random towns kind of spread throughout the nation of Israel, and the way they got their food was they were allowed to eat part of the sacrifices that came, and since they were the priesthood, they were supposed to help be taken care of by the other tribes because their ministry is serving the Lord and the priesthood. So we had 14 tribes, but we actually get down to 12. Joseph's out because he's represented by Manasseh and Ephraim. We're down to 13. Levi is out. Now we have Manasseh and Ephraim go in there and take care of this. So that's how we get down to 12 tribes. I know a lot of you don't really care. I love that stuff. I absolutely love it. Because we could go on even farther. Even farther. And you know what? It's not even in my notes. I don't even care anymore. We're going to go even farther. Because in Revelation, when it mentions the 144,000 of Israel, this is where it gets fascinating. Dan's not in. Dan got kicked out. And you remember why Dan got kicked out? Anybody want to throw that out there? What did Dan do wrong? Does anybody remember? Somebody? Nobody? Dan brought idolatry into Israel. So since the tribe of Dan brought idolatry into Israel, in the tribulation time when you have the 144,000, the 12 tribes, Dan doesn't get to be a part of it. So guess what? Levi's back in. But now when you go into the millennial reign, guess what? Dan's back in. And you know why Dan's back in? Because the millennial reign represents grace. It represents mercy. So it represents even though you screwed up, you brought idolatry into Israel, tribe of Dan, God in his grace will give you a second chance. So therefore, Dan is now included in the millennial reign. And guess what happens? Levi's back out. Because during the millennial reign, guess what we're doing again? We're doing sacrifices again. So Levi's back to helping with the priesthood. And I could keep going on and on and on, but I've already lost you, so we're going to stop there real quick. I'm just telling you, it's really cool. Study it out. The 12 tribes... They're always mentioned differently. They're always mentioned in a different order because there's this constant influx of what's going on. Dan's in, Dan's out. Levi's in, Levi's out. And it's a wonderful, fascinating study. But the point is that Jacob is saying here with Ephraim and Manasseh, I'm going to bless you twice, Joseph. So Ephraim and Manasseh get a chance to come in. And Ephraim definitely gets blessed, which we'll get to here in just a little bit. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about the 12 tribes before we move on? Because I kind of threw a lot of stuff out there. Okay. Real quick, we need to mention this if you look in verse uh, 7. Where it says, But for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan. That idea of Canaan takes us back to verse 3 of Luz. Luz is another name for Bethel. Bethel slash Luz is a very important point in Jacob's life. It's at Bethel or Luz that Jacob had the vision of the ladder going to heaven in Genesis 28. That's where God really got a hold of Jacob's attention. It was also in chapter 35 that Jacob recommitted his life to God at Bethel or Luz. That's where he told all of his servants and all of his kids and all of his wives, get rid of all the idols. And you really see a change happening there. So Luz or Bethel, it's the same place, was important to Jacob. God first appeared to him there with the ladder to heaven in Genesis 28. And in Genesis 35, this is also where Jacob recommitted his life to the Lord. Now, the question I want to ask you is this. Where is your Bethel? Bethel means house of God. So where is the spot in your life? Where is the location for you where you stop and you say, Lord, that's where I want to get serious with you? Because I think we all need one of these locations. And maybe it's not an actual physical location. Maybe it's a place for you. Where is your house of God that you can go to and be alone with the Lord? You know, for me, my Bethel, my house of God, is early in the morning at my kitchen table before anybody else wakes up. 
That's my place where I can go to the Lord, and that's where him and I talk the most, and it's calm and it's quiet. There's no other calm, quiet time or place that I have, so that's my Bethel. If I try to go into my bedroom and I lock the door, my boys have realized how to unlock the door now. They've learned how to do that. And it really makes Dawn mad when I lock her out, so I don't do that. My Bethel, my house of God, is before anybody wakes up sitting at my kitchen table. And if I find myself spiritually starting to fall away from the Lord, I know I need to go back to Bethel, which means I need to get up in the morning and spend some time with the Lord and word and in prayer. So what I guess what I'm asking you is this. Where's your Bethel? Where's your Luz where you stop and you say, Lord, this is where I feel closest to you. This is where I need to be with you. Maybe it's a certain chair where you can go and pray. Maybe it's a certain place where you really feel the presence of the Lord. I don't know. But you need to have one of those spots. Because what you see with Jacob, this is what really impacts him spiritually. This is where he recommitted. This is where he first came to really know the Lord. And you need a Bethel. You need a place, the house of God, where you really can grow in the Lord as well, too. So what's going to happen here? Verse 8, then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. Now think about that for perspective, verse 11. It goes back to our verse here for the night. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. Look at verse 11. Look what Jacob is saying to Joseph. I never thought I was going to see you, and now I get to see your kids. What an amazing thing that is. See, we, we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. And, and that's what kind of, kind of ruins it a little bit, I think, in some ways. Because I can't remember the first time I heard the story of Joseph and Jacob. I can't remember the first time that I realized, wow, Joseph's going to move up the ladder here and he's going to be in Egypt. And oh my goodness, Jacob's going to come back and see him again. Because we've heard this so many times. But verse 11, just stop and think about this. Jacob thought he lost his son. For, for, for years, Jacob thought his precious child was mauled by some animal and was dead. What an awful thing for a parent to have to go through. Then he finds out he's alive. So we have this chapter a couple chapters ago where Jacob's basically saying, I just hope I can make it to Egypt alive. So he makes it to Egypt, God reassures him, and now Jacob, at the end of his life, is looking at Joseph and basically just saying, I never thought I would see you again, and now now I don't only get to see you, I get to see your kids. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. Don't let your common knowledge of this story ruin the impact of what's really going on here. Verse 12, Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his right hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guided his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. See what's going on here. Joseph is, uh, Jacob's going to be blessed and younger, not going to be blessed and older. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them in the name of my father, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. There's some really neat verses in here. First one, verse 15, the God who has fed me. 
Now, if you're King James or New King James, it says, fed me. If you're almost any other translation, NIV, NLT, ESV, it says shepherd. That's a much better translation. What Jacob is saying is the God who shepherded me. See, there's a big difference between feeding and shepherding somebody. If I go out to eat and I go to McDonald's, they feed me. They're not shepherding me. There's a huge difference. Shepherding shows this idea of closeness, connection. Think of all the passages of shepherding that Jesus talked about. How the shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. How the shepherd is not a hireling. It's not somebody just doing it for the money. It's somebody who cares. They care for the body. They care for everybody. What Jacob is trying to say here is, God, he shepherds me. He just doesn't feed me. He takes care of me spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Years ago, I went over to a, uh, another Calvary. It was a Calvary in Indianapolis. And I just met with them for a while, just wisdom to say, hey, how do you guys do things? How will we can learn from you? And I sat down and had a meeting with their uh, head of their children's ministry, a great guy. And, I, and I'll never forget what he said to me. Because I asked him about uh, how they do child care. And he interrupted me. And he goes, whoa. He goes, we don't do child care. He goes, we do children's ministry. Child care is, I keep your child safe, I keep your child warm, and I keep your child clean, and I keep your child fed. That's child care. He goes, we do children's ministry. He goes, we do all that, and then we also love your child like Jesus would to help them grow deeper in their walk with Christ. Boy, that really hit me. How often do we do child care? Hey, I had eight kids, I left with eight kids. No bumps, no bruises, no blood, no mud. I did good. That's child care. No, we want children's ministry. We want to love your children to take care of them in Christ. Same thing even with adults. We could do child care for adults. No, we want to minister to them. We want to shepherd them. And so that word there in verse 15, my God who has fed me all my life, more, more powerful. The God who has shepherded me, taken care of me, met my needs. And who did it? Verse 16, the angel. Depending on your translation, mine's a capital A angel, which means it's making a reference to God, which means it's making a reference to Jesus. That he met God, he knew him, and God who redeemed me from all evil. I tell you, verses 15 and 16 are powerful verses. Let's go back to our verse for the night. God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. Jump back 120-some years ago. When Jacob is lying and cheating to get the blessing from Esau, whose Jacob's name means deceit. Jacob, who is doing everything he can, he was an ordinary little snot, and nobody liked him. Now, 120-some years later, he's a changed man and God. That's what the Lord does. So sometimes these people that you see right now, and you can't stand them, and you think, what is the Lord doing? Give them 120 years. And see what the Lord does in their lives. The Jacob that we see in Genesis 48 is not the Jacob that we saw back in the Genesis 20s. Not. The Lord has changed him. And that's an amazing, amazing blessing there. Well, Joseph sees he's blessing the wrong kids, verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that, his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, No, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. The firstborn always got the blessing. Verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. 
So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, My God, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, Ephraim does become so powerful that when the nation of Israel splits, and you have Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom, and you have the other tribes in the northern kingdom, the Bible just refers to them as Ephraim. They're that powerful. Ephraim becomes that powerful of a tribe, and that shows the blessing here. And it goes back to the verses that we have up there. Jacob says, I'm going to take the two. So now we have 14 tribes. Just let me repeat this real quick. But Joseph, you're kind of out because your kids are both represented. And then Levi's out because remember, as the priesthood, their inheritance is the Israel takes care of them. The nation of Israel takes care of Levi so that way they can focus on the priesthood. That's the responsibility of the nation is to make sure the priesthood is taken care of. So Levi's kind of out. So that's how you get back to your 12 tribes. And Ephraim becomes powerful. Ephraim becomes very powerful. Now, I'm going to ask you a question I can't answer. God constantly does this. You know, we got this Old Testament idea that the firstborn always gets the blessing. God kind of doesn't really follow that rule. So let me make you a list. Who was blessed more, Cain or Abel? Abel, I would say. Cain was the firstborn. Ishmael or Isaac? Well, Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn. Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn. Joseph and Judah get the blessing. Moses. Aaron was older than Moses. So even though God kind of has this system of saying the firstborn gets it, we can just go right down the line. David, king of Israel, he wasn't the firstborn. It's almost like God says, here's the rule. Oh, but by the way, I can change the rule anytime I want. Oh, but by the way, God is also the same today, yesterday, and forever. You know, you sometimes stop and you scratch your head on this. It's like, okay, Lord, firstborn's supposed to get the blessing, but Abel, Isaac, Joseph, Judah, Moses, uh, they weren't. What are we trying to say here, Lord? I'm just going to share this with you real quick. You don't have to write it down. Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God says, I, I got a plan. You just got to trust me. I got a plan. You just got to trust me. You know, I'm a big fan of birth order. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's a lot of systems that work. My personal opinion, I married a firstborn. And my oldest, obviously, Elias, has a lot of firstborn tendencies. I don't think God likes working with firstborns. I know I personally don't. I'm just throwing that out at you. How many here are firstborns? Will you admit it? You say, I don't like you. I just, I'm looking at the people's hands going up, and I find you difficult to... I'm kidding. Because I'm afraid to tell you that because you're firstborns. No, I'm kidding. The Lord has this system. And the firstborn's supposed to get the blessing, but God says, nah, I got a different system here. And this is what he's done. I mean, I can keep giving you the examples again and again. David, the shepherd boy, becomes king of Israel. Gideon, the guy that's so scared of the Midianites, he's hiding behind a hill. God says, oh, great and valor, Gideon. That makes no sense. Moses, the guy that says, I can't talk, God says he wants to use. I think sometimes God skips the firstborn because, let's just be honest, I'm joking about the firstborn thing, but if I need something done at home, who do I ask to do it? Elias, the firstborn. He takes charge. He wants to do it. The other day, Elias and Judah were doing something, and Elias just takes charge. And so I looked at Elias, and I like whispered to him, Elias, let, let Judah have a turn here. So Elias looks at Judah, and he goes, Judah, would you like to be in charge? 
Judah goes, oh, no, please, no. You know, that's, that's a second board. Please don't put me in charge. I don't want to be in charge. So Elias comes to me and goes, Dad, I offered it. He doesn't want it. I said, go with it, buddy. Just go with it. You know, sometimes I think the Lord picks the non-firstborns just to say, look, I can work also with anybody. You know, think of just our two passages tonight. And if this is the only thing you get out of tonight, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that you say or think. I mean, he's proven it here, uh, you know, with the famine, how he took care of Egypt, how he took care of Joseph and Jacob, how he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, how he takes care of Joseph. I mean, God did exceedingly abundantly we could ever imagine. And the next passage, that my ways are not your ways. You may be in a spot right now where you're like, Lord, this makes no sense. I don't get this. And God's like, yeah, that's the point. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Why does Ephraim get the blessing? God has a plan, and that plan is revealed later on. But we just need to trust the plan sometime. So we're going to get done here because it's 8 o'clock. So that finishes up Genesis 48. This puts us in good position for next week. Genesis 49 and Genesis 50. We'll finish up our study in Genesis, then have two Wednesdays off with uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. I encourage you to read ahead for Genesis 49 and 50 because... We're going to go through all the 12 tribes and the prophecy and the blessing that happens to them. And I love Genesis 49. What a wonderful.